Hey everyone, it's uh, Dave Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, and now Google Play podcast where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing businesses. Today I've got a very special guest, <clears throat> Ian Handaran from Prince Edward Island, Canada. Um, and Ian's on the show for two different reasons. Number one, Ian started and sold a business, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in his experience today. But number two, Ian and I shared a tent going up Mount Kilimanjaro. How has it been since you got back? Is everybody asking you about your experience, Ian? Yes, yeah. A lot of people are interested in it. A lot of people have no idea where it is, and they just think it's so cool. <laughs> and it was. I was, uh, I was out this weekend with Natalie up in Miramichi, and uh, she took me along with her to church, and everyone there, that's all they wanted to talk about. Oh, really? <laughs> Our trip. They had all heard we had gone there, and, and uh, uh, really, we should have just gone up in front with the microphone. But Yeah. Well, it's just so exotic for Canadians. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, because you, I mean, I don't think you started your life with an idea that you were a businessman. It was kind of a little bit of a different thing than when you started out, but eventually you became a business owner. Why don't you tell us how you got started and about the business that you built up? Well, I started in, uh, well, since I was young, I had motorcycles and bicycles, whatever, and I liked auto repair. So I immediately went into it right after high school. I got a good job at a few different places. I sometimes worked two jobs, uh, dealerships in the daytime, gas stations at night. And it worked into, I ended up at this gas station for about 14 years, and it was a very busy one. But it was one of the ESSA ones that eventually got squeezed out, just wasn't needed anymore, and they just kept putting the pressure on the owner, and I could see the end was coming. So I think it closed. I was 30 years old. So at that point, I had two choices. Everybody knows them. <laughs> work for somebody else or work for yourself. So I decided to work for myself. So I found a piece of land. We um, found a contractor. We built the building out of my dreams, but a building exactly what I needed. Yeah. Kept price conscious, exactly what I wanted. And I, from the day we started, I had an exit strategy and uh, it executed perfectly. It, we were busy from the day we opened. And uh, yeah, so it was, we had it 16 years, almost 17 years. And then we decided I got to a point where it was it, it was going to have to be expanded. It was so busy, building bays on, hiring more people, just going to the next level, and I didn't want to do it. I think. Well, before we get before we get into the end, you said something very interesting. You said you had an exit plan from the beginning. Most people who are in your who get into your shoes when they decide to start a business, they're thinking about creating an income. They're thinking about earning money, and so you said you started with a, with an exit plan in mind. So does that mean before you hired the contractor, you were trying to think of how you could make the business so that someday somebody else would want to own it? Exactly. We didn't call it Ian's auto repair. Yeah. We call it quick wrench auto. So, um, if somebody took it, walked in and I walked out, the public for the most part wouldn't notice. They noticed me not there, but it wouldn't be all tied to me. Like you can't do this because Ian's not there anymore. I yeah. wanted 
I want it to look like a franchise. I wanted everybody to think it was a franchise. And actually people did. And it wasn't. And uh, we, we used a lot of systems and procedures. And and that's, yeah, exactly. We, we knew there was an end game. And we didn't want to like, die behind the counter like a lot of the generation before me. I don't know how many just, they say, died behind the counter. They worked until they couldn't work anymore. And so were you influenced by books that you had read or something like this, or, or was it the fact that you just saw so many people before you in the industry and you just thought, this can't be my path? Um, a bit of both, a bit of both. It's, it's a, it's a hard industry. It is, it's dirty, it's dangerous, it's dusty. People get sick in it, people get hurt in it. And, um, I wanted to uh, do other things in my life. I love doing it. I, I was passionate about it. I worked, I basically went 15 years without a vacation. Like I was there all the time. Like the might have taken three days off in a row. That's it. But you know, you can't keep that up. Yeah. So, uh, so at a certain point, I wanted out. I wanted to take the money and do other things with it and have basically my money work for me at a certain point. And, and you had always, once you got the business going and you had a little bit of extra money, you started looking for other ways that you could make investments and you started to get into property a little bit and stuff. Yeah. Immediately we took the profits out of it. We started another holding company, both for liability issues. If something ever happened, they could only take what was in one company. So we took all the profits into another company and started buying properties. It was an excellent time to getting in, in this around basically 05, 06 on. Uh, farmland was going for a song. Uh, it was a, a it was a low in the market, not like now. We could buy basic forty acre farms or plots, of commercial land around town that was going for really reasonable. Yeah. And we sat on a few years, and all of a sudden the bubble you see it coming back. And uh, I recently just sold another one two weeks ago. Actually, it was sold when I was on Kilimanjaro. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I got back and there it was. The papers were sitting when I got back. So, yeah. so then, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I was just going to say, so, um, you know, a lot of people will talk about someone who's kind of like, um, you know, a born entrepreneur or someone who's always, you know, had their hand in a lot of things. It, it sounds like you grew into this after you made the decision to start your own place? Yeah. It, um, somebody asked me the other day, and I said, well, first, yeah, it was uh, kind of a funny, first I learned how to do auto repair. And then, and then I learned how to sell auto repair. And then I learned how to value a business. And then I learned from experts like yourself how to sell a business. So it was, it was a nice circle. And um, I really think anybody can do it. It's just going in with the right mindset that, it, it not, it's not for everybody. Some people love what they do and want to do it. I talked to other, like when I sold mine, I was one of the first ones around to ever a, build one of the new style auto repairs instead of just doing over an old garage or something. And the first one to sell an auto repair, some thought I was crazy. Like, Why are you selling? And I kind of asked them, why don't you sell? And uh, they say, I love what I do and I'll do it till I die. So that's for some. <laughs> You, you had told me when we were doing the hiking on Kilimanjaro, you told me an interesting story about um, a, a consultant or an advisor who's in the auto repair space who helped you see that 
just because your business was similar to others, it didn't mean that you had to charge the same prices. And I think you gave an example of an oil filter and he compared it to Coca-Cola. Could you share that a little bit? Because I thought that was a really great story. Yeah, that was really good. Um, it was actually a videotape. It was a VCR tape. Some of the only business training I had was two VCR tapes from CarQuest, Vision Quest, another one. And uh, it was all about what should you charge? And it was really fascinating. And he compared like an oil filter. Like um, it's very it's very common in this industry to be overcharged, not on purpose, but on brand names. There's only about three major oil filter manufacturers in the world and they'll brand up to 40 filters at 40 different prices. And uh, if a high-end Asian name may be on the filter, it goes for a premium rather than a, a Walmart or whatever discount store and basically same filter. And um, he likened it to Coca-Cola, like you, you have to charge this much for Coca-Cola. He said, well, around town, if you go in and buy it from five, six different places, it's different by the small can, large can, two liter. You go into a restaurant, they'll fill the glass with ice, half ice, fill it, uh, there's very little Coca-Cola in it. And you'll be paying, you could be paying five times what you are at a grocery store. So he said, really know your, the biggest thing that I, I took from it is know your cost. Know your cost, know what you have to have to get out of it. Don't sell it at a loss. Don't sell anything at a loss. Like you don't, don't overcharge, don't undercharge. If you overcharge, you're unfair to the customer. If you undercharge, you're unfair to yourself and your employees yeah. and your family. So it's a, it's a happy medium. Find out where you have to be and try and stay there and always adjust it. As, as your prices increase, you have to pass it on. Which means understanding what your costs really are, which is, which yes. is the other half of the battle in business ownership is when people don't have the right information. And your costs are not only just what the invoice says. There's yeah. so much more. There's insurance. There's so many. Like Canada is really supported by the taxpayers and mo the taxpayers are mostly small business people that really pay a lion's share of it. We don't have a lot of deductions. So you have to know your costs. So, yeah. Um, now, when you decided that it was time to actually start to sell the business, um, I, you know, I hear a lot from business owners who say, I want to sell the business, I want to get a big check, and I want to walk away, which is not generally how businesses are sold. And, and you had that same kind of attitude at the beginning of the process, and then it evolved in a rather dramatic way. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like, how did you and your wife feel in the beginning when you decided to sell the business versus the deal you actually ended up doing? Yeah, my wife and I, had, she was a big part of everything. She was with by my side the whole time. She did all the paperwork, all the behinds. And um, it came kind of sudden. We just, within 90 days of deciding to sell, I was gone. So, it, which is incredible because we thought it would take years to sell. But we priced it aggressively, not cheap, because we really built a premium into this business and we wanted it out. So at first, yeah, we, we said, we'll put a fictitious number, one million, say. 
mm-hmm. and say, we want that million dollars. You want to check for that. We want to walk away and never see anybody again. And um, that was great until we figured out how banks work. Banks really like to finance the 60% of the deal. So we had millionaire, basically millionaire people coming to me and wanting to buy the business and say it's a million dollars. Okay, well, the bank could give me 600, but I have to sell my property or, you know, do whatever to come up with the other four. And I said, I'm not waiting. I said, that's your problem. I'm not waiting. And, uh, and I had several like big companies trying to buy it just for the cash flow because it was good cash flow. And everyone was coming back with that. And then I read your three books and it's one Sunday afternoon. So, so all the buyers, all the buyers who are strong buyers, like people would not look at these people and go, wow, there's a successful business person. Yes. Yeah. They were all coming to you with the same problem is that they didn't have a checkbook that could write a million dollar check. They probably had a two and three million dollar business, but they didn't have a million dollars cash. Right. They were smart enough not to have a million dollars sit in their account, right? So their their money was tied up here, there, and everywhere. So they're going to have to liquidate things, which could take two weeks or two years. And basically, said, I'm not waiting. And uh, so that's where that's where um, the idea of self. Well, yes, I was said one Sunday afternoon, I was sitting, I had read your books, and I was just sitting there, and I was thinking, well, the banks are ruining, I think it was three deals in one week, or two weeks, period. I said, the banks are just being really hard to deal with, and they ruined three deals for me. And I was thinking, well, Dave said something with that, so why can't I be the bank? I said, the bank says it's going to make over a 15-year period are probably going to make three to four hundred thousand on this deal, and they're being absolutely stubborn with very, very good. Like I couldn't believe the caliper people that were coming to me that couldn't do this. I said they're turning them down. Like there, there's no question about security. These companies are good, right? So, so the people who were making you offers were in the industry already. They were operators with a track record and you knew these, who these guys were. You knew of their business and you knew that they knew how to run a good shop. Yes. Some of them weren't in auto repair, which was my only worry. But I had given them the offer of a, I had one guy that worked with me that could come into the bays and go behind the counter and actually run it because some of them had no idea how to run it. They were buying it for cash flow, which is a little dicey when, you're, when you build something up. But that didn't come around. That that didn't come into play anyway, because none of those people could come up with the money. So, yeah, we decided to finance it ourselves. And once we put it in, and um, I came up with an idea. I think I read a little bit of each of your books. I read all the books, and then I came up with this plan. I called you one Sunday afternoon. I said, "Here's what I want to do, and uh, what do you think?" And you gave me two or three little pieces of information. I called. Uh, I got um, a good offer from a competitor that knew auto repair. is was actually a friend of mine that I knew for years. And uh, called him in. We made a deal within five minutes. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And then, uh, like on PEI, they say a deal's not a deal until somebody walks away unhappy. And on this <laughs> one, nobody walks away unhappy. It so so these, guys, these guys were all having trouble 
with the bank and then you called this guy and you said, you know what, we can leave the banker out of it now. I'm going to finance the deal. What was his reaction when you told him you were willing to do that? Yes. Yeah. He just said he's yes. Immediate. Yes. Yeah. Cause he knew what he was, he was going to have to sell a piece of his property too. He was one of the persons I was talking to, but I felt most at home with him at ease with him because uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was in the industry. He was in a second location. He really wanted what I had. So uh, when I took that stress off him, it was immediate. He said, great, you know, done deal. Shook hands and uh, that was it. So when you removed the problem of dealing with the bank, do you think that that also removed some of his need to try to maybe negotiate the price down? Like, do you think he became more accepting of the price you wanted because you took the bank problem away? Yes. Yeah. When I took the bank problem away, it was going to take well, lawyer fees and all that. And it was going to take a lot of digging and proving. Even if you're approved by the bank, it takes a long time. You, they really don't want to give you money unless you don't need it. Right. And they really put you through the ringer and just, you just feel exhausted after it. So it was just saying, if somebody said you can have this, this, this property or whatever that you really want, and it's going to be so stress-free, he basically, I walked out on the, at the, the last day of the month. I gave him the keys and he walked in. There was no money down. He just walked into a business and it was his. And we, we, we signed legally. I was covered a number of different ways and I was at ease. My wife was at ease. He was at ease. His wife was at ease. The, yep. the employees. So one of the, one of the reasons why this particular deal worked with him not putting a down payment down is because he was already in this business and the strength of that other business he had already built was part of this deal for you. Like as far as guaranteeing the money that he owed you. Yeah. Yeah. His business is actually larger than mine. I had a four bay shop. He had a, I think a five bay shop and he, he'd been going for probably eight, eight to 10 years mm-hmm. and he knows his stuff. So uh, it was very, at ease with him. So at the end of the day, you got a deal that went more quickly because he didn't have to jump through the banker's hoops. You probably ended up getting a better price than if, because if somebody else had come along with a million dollars in the bank, they would have used that cash to, to negotiate hard with you. Right? Yes. So you probably got a, a higher price than you might normally have gotten. When I took the stress off him, yes, yeah. And over the next, I don't know how long the deal is, but it's probably more than 10 years, but over the next little while, you're also going to get all the profit that the bank would have have earned. Yeah, Yeah, it's over 15 years. And um, yes, all that money that the bank would have got, they're not getting. (laughs) I am. (laughs) So, uh, and uh, I'm totally covered. So it's it's just, it's a great way to do something I. And I thank you for it. Like you put the idea in my head. And uh, I think more of your viewers should really, really, really look at that. If you were, if somebody else came along who had a business that they wanted to sell and they were thinking about doing this, what sort of tidbits or, or pieces of advice now that you can look back on your deal might you put forward to somebody else? Um, a big thing on PEI is, is even five years, we did 10 years. We didn't, we took very little money out of our business cash wise. We took, we made the books as strong as you can. Uh, 
I was involved in two other deals with my brother I was telling him about, mm-hmm. trying to buy two other businesses, and they were a joke. They made nothing because the owners just took everything out of the – they just destroyed the business. It's, they're still strong businesses. But you, you, mean they took, you mean they took cash out of the till, like in an unre- they had unreported sales, so they made the business yes, look – that was one trick, and they'd run every expense. Uh, fuel oil for their home would be run through the business. Cell phones, everything's run through the business. They're under the impression that if I make any money, I got to pay tax on it, which is bad. Well, in a way it is, if you don't like to pay tax, but your business is worth nothing when you say, I want a million dollars for this business and it didn't make any money last year. It actually lost, some of these were losing 100,000 a year. And we just said, how can you justify that? Well, it's like you said, what these businesses, that have, what they say they can make and what they do make. Like some of these places said they were making six, $750,000 a year. I said, you know, your, your finances, financial statements for the last 10 years contradict that. Yeah. And they, you made nothing. And, uh, and uh, two of them we had to walk away from because they had destroyed their business on paper. What I, what I often tell business owners that are in that boat is I say, look, you, you played games with your books to save on taxes. And the cost of doing that is if you want to sell your business now, you're going to have to be the bank because now no banker is going to make a loan. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and, and they, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to dodge the taxes and walk away with the big check. And unfortunately it rarely turns out good. What, what I've seen happen so many times is that they end up trying to sell and the time starts to drag on and then other things start to actually cause the business to decline. Yeah. And it usually ends up just fizzling out or having to close, unfortunately. Yeah. I say keep your business legitimate, pay your taxes, do, do it correctly and the big payoffs at the end. Taking yeah. Taking a hundred thousand dollars over ten years cash and losing eight hundred thousand on a sale, it just doesn't make sense. So numbers are numbers. <laughs> there you go. All right. Ian, thank you so much for 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 joining us. Um, any tips or tricks for anyone who might be planning to go up Kilimanjaro? Oh, Kilimanjaro, that was fun. That was uh don't forget your lunch like I did, but I <laughs> uh, lost it. But, uh, no, it's just, uh, I learned from, from Everest uh, when I was on Everest before. In the morning, when you're climbing, don't look up the mountain and see those headlights miles away. Just keep your head down and walk. Because the first time it really discouraged me. We still made it, but it seemed like you're never going to get there. This time, you just keep your head down. Um, Eat that that company we're with were excellent. Yeah, um, they really fed us well, took good care of us, and uh, it was really cool to get to top of another one. I um, I what Ian is referring to is the night you actually go to the peak, you do it overnight, so you're in darkness, and people are wearing those little headlamps, and and I didn't think we got started that late. I mean, we hit the trail when we were scheduled to, but there were already hundreds of people ahead of us on the trail. And it was just like a a glowing snake going up the side of the hill. And uh, I I thought it looked pretty cool. I tried to take a picture of it, but my my camera wasn't able to to capture it properly. Um, 
What surprised me was the dust. Yes. Um, when we got up into the desert part of the mountain, um, the it was so dry because it hadn't rained there in such a long time up, up at the top above the clouds. Every time a person took a step in front of you, it kicked up a bit of dust. I ended up actually getting bronchitis because of the you know, particles and stuff that I inhaled. Yeah. Um, the but, really <laughs> well, <clears throat> I still have a cough every once in a while, but thank you very much, Ian. Um, and sure. thanks for sharing the story. So often we hear about people who have sold their business and they'll be on the golf course and they'll say, I just sold my business for a million dollars and everyone smiles and nods and nobody ever thinks to ask, oh yeah, what were the terms of sale? How much did you get down? Do you have to finance part of that? Like it's never part of the conversation. And I know that there are buyers who are going to be listening to this video. And I, I tell people all the time, like seller financing is an important part of these business transactions. And it seems like everyone else that they're running into is saying, no, no, you got to borrow from the bank. You got to have all cash, et cetera. And so I was, I'm thankful that you were willing to share your story of how you did your deal and how you're ending up much further ahead than other sellers because you were willing to do the deal in this way. And um, if somebody out there has a business and they're thinking about selling, they should head over to my website, howtosellmyownbusiness.com because there's a, a three and a half hour online course there that actually details deal structure and, and, and some of the stuff that Ian and I have talked about today in much greater detail. And the tax consequences versus share and uh, asset is huge. Yes. Huge. Yeah. So, uh, if you people. It, especially in Canada. It, yeah, and, and that's another, that's one of the biggest reasons I often tell people when I'm speaking to groups of business owners, if you can keep your company properly, keep the books properly, it's much more likely that you're going to be able to pull off a share deal, which, yes. which means you avoid a lot of tax uh, for people in Canada. 40 and to what's that? It was 40 to 50%. I think tax loss, if you, if you sold it in shares. It, it's a huge difference. It's a huge if difference. For a million, you walked away with half. Well, not exactly because it has to do you when you sell the assets, the accountants have to figure out what the capital cost recapture was. And there's all kinds of things and things are taxed at different amounts. It's, it's a, a bit more of a complicated co calculation, but when you're able to sell shares right up to your minimum, your, uh, your deduction limit is tax free. And that's, yes. that's an easy calculation to make because it's time 0% tax. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you later, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Have a good right. day. Bye-bye.